So last week, we looked at the mission of Redeemer Fellowship, that we are a church that seeks to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. This is the reason we exist. Our desire is to be a people who live out our union with Christ by worshiping God and serving and caring for others, those within our community of faith and those living beyond these four walls. And the guardrails that will keep us from drifting away from our mission are our core values. We are a church that is gospel-centered, that seeks to cultivate both a life with God and deeply formed community with one another. This morning, we're going to look at what it means to be gospel-centered. Now, as we're getting started, I want you to maybe think through that question. Not maybe, but I want you to think through that question, what is the gospel? And if you want, maybe even jot down a sentence or two in your bulletin answering that question. And at some point later on this week, take a look at your definition and look at the passages that we worked through this morning and see if you can challenge yourself to fill out that definition, whatever it is that you wrote down in your bulletin. So I just want to encourage you to do that, just a little, you know, kind of activity for you to work on throughout the week. And, and so my hope is that the gospel becomes bigger than just our salvation. And that when we begin wrestling with its depth, that God will become bigger, his calling will become more meaningful, and that we will be drawn into deeper community with him, deeper communion with him. And so to be gospel-centered means that the gospel informs every single thing we do, namely because it is such an all-encompassing story. Now, that story that we're going to be wrestling with this morning, it began all the way back in the book of Genesis, when God spoke hope into one of the darkest moments in human history. But we're going to fast forward to a word from the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 52. I also have it on the screen behind me. Now, if I could set the scene for a quick minute, we're in a section of Isaiah known as the Servant Songs. The people are longing for a day when their exile would come to an end, when God would demonstrate his faithfulness. And just as God spoke a word of hope into the darkness of Eden, following Adam's disobedience, he extends that hope again. And so it says in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Author and scholar Michael Goheen, he paints the picture like this, and I have a slide, it's a long quote. The prophet Isaiah describes a day to come when Israel will once again be free and return from the land of oppression to the holy city of Jerusalem. And all those who stayed behind in that city, while the rest were driven into exile, now stand on tiptoe, watching from Jerusalem's walls and towers. They look for the herald who will run ahead of the crowd to proclaim the long-hoped-for news of the end of the exile and the beginning of God's renewed reign. The people see this messenger while he is still a long way off running now across the mountains that guard the approach to the city. They hear his voice. They hear the message. God is king. And so if you're sitting in exile, longing to go home, this is the good news you're hoping to hear. 
And this is the substance of Isaiah's gospel. Notice what it says in verse 7 of Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountain of the feet are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion the words that this messenger utters, that he's screaming as he's running toward the walls of Jerusalem. His gospel message is, your God reigns. That's the content of his gospel. And what accompanies this good news that that this messenger is proclaiming as he's running towards the city is news of peace, happiness, and salvation. And it's a peace, happiness, and salvation that will extend to the ends of the earth. Look at verses 8 through 12 with me. The voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. They see the salvation of our God. And where does it extend? To the ends of the earth. Now Israel does eventually find their way back to Jerusalem. And while there is joy in this, the peace, the happiness, and the salvation that Isaiah spoke of, the reign of God that was supposed to extend to the ends of the earth, it's just not there. It's just not there. One author argues that Israel is still in exile even though they have returned, which is the story of how the Hebrew Bible ends. The people are still in exile, a long exile, which still awaits them until the Messiah comes and restores all things. In fact, the closing of the Hebrew Bible, in its original construction, it ends with Chronicles. And, and, and the story ends with King Cyrus issuing a decree for Israel to go back into their own land and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and, and establish their, their nation. But the reality is, is that they're still under a foreign king. And so that's how the Hebrew Bible ends. It ends with Israel still in exile, even though their feet are in Jerusalem, which is a wild thing, right? to be in occupied territory. And it's into this world that Jesus speaks the words of Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. And again, it is on the screen behind me. This is after Jesus was baptized and after his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And he says this. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So first thing, Mark tells us that Jesus is proclaiming or actually the word is preaching. In other words, Jesus was making both a public and an official announcement. That's what that word means. It's a public and an official announcement. That's what preaching is. Right? There's something actually very political about what we do as a church because we're proclaiming a kingdom, and a kingdom's a very political thing. But it's not the sort of politics that we imagine when we think of politics. It's an otherworldly politic. 
So he's preaching and proclaiming this kingdom of God. Mark describes this announcement. The words he used to describe this announcement are the gospel of God. But what did that word gospel mean to the original hearers? What did that term conjure up in their minds? Well, first, if you were a Gentile or a Roman citizen, the word gospel was also a royal proclamation, but it was relating specifically to the emperor. Maybe it was the good news of the emperor's birthday or news of a military victory. It could also be the good news at the beginning of a new emperor's reign. But if you were Jewish, it carried a very different meaning, and that meaning was wrapped up in the promise of Isaiah and the content of his gospel, which is what? Your God reigns. Your God reigns. There's more here. The text says that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, we're given the content of his gospel. What does it say in verse 15? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And just like Isaiah's gospel, Jesus' gospel is a message proclaiming the coming of God's rule and reign. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we don't have time to get into the particulars, but I believe, with, uh, along with New Testament scholar R.T. France, that Mark's use of the perfect tense here, for all you grammarians, Mark's use of the perfect tense suggests that something more is intended than a statement of imminence. Jesus is not predicting some future event, but rather he is announcing the time of the fulfillment. In other words, when Jesus preaches the gospel that the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. He's picking up the promise of Isaiah 52.7 that your God reigns. And if that's true, if that's true, then the only rational response is for the people to leave behind whatever they had been following, to repent and to entrust themselves to this new reality, that their God is now reigning. And so the gospel, according to Jesus, is the good news that God did not forget his promises and that his rule and reign is here, a rule and reign that carries with it peace, happiness, and salvation. Now, Jesus continues to unfold the nature of God's rule and reign throughout the course of his ministry. We see this in a couple of places. In passages like Luke 4, where Jesus identifies himself as the one who is bringing good news to the poor, who is setting the captives free, who is giving sight to the blind and releasing those who are oppressed. He lays down the expectations for those who identify as citizens of this new kingdom in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in his Sermon on the Mount. A new law that calls us out from the world to be a people who reflect the upside down nature of this kingdom. And throughout the Gospels, we learn that the hope of the new kingdom is extended through faith, love, and sacrifice. And so when Jesus preaches the Gospel, he preaches Isaiah's Gospel. When Jesus preaches the gospel, he preaches Isaiah's gospel. Your God reigns. The kingdom of God is here. In fact, in, in Matthew, 
John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preaching and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's baptizing people and people are repenting. And then just a few verses later, who shows up? No one other than Jesus himself. And so, so John is preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is here, and then Jesus shows up. And so the point that Matthew is making is that, is that the gospel, the kingdom of God, it's wrapped up in a person. And that person is Jesus. And so when we think about the gospel, 100% our salvation is there, right? 100 billion percent. Oh, but it's so much bigger. It's so much bigger. It's an all-encompassing story that is political in nature because it's, 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 it's proclaiming a kingdom that is entering into this world and it captures every single bit of who we are. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus preaches. But it's not just the gospel that Jesus preaches. In fact, if we look at the Apostle Paul, it's also the gospel he preaches. Because the gospel is the story of God's rule and reign breaking into creation, in and through the person of Jesus. But how does this Jesus become the one we call king? Well, in his letter to the Romans... Paul says in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I have a slide for this. He says, A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Look at the text. One thing that pops out is that the gospel was something that was promised beforehand. It's not something new. And we know it was promised beforehand because Isaiah said, check this out, good news is coming, gospel is coming, your God reigns. And so when, when Jewish people were reading through or hearing the words of Jesus and Paul and reading through Paul's letters, when they heard that word gospel, they're immediately going back to Isaiah. That's where the word shows up in the Old Testament. And for the Gentiles hearing this, they immediately go to some royal proclamation. There's some sort of politic being preached here. And so it's, so it's tapping into both groups of people. What is the gospel? Well, it's something that's concerning his son, or it's about his son. In other words, the gospel is about Jesus. But what about Jesus? Well, one, that he was descended from David. And so this is, this is a story that stretches back. And that he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead. It was through or because or by means of his resurrection from the dead that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. In other words, it was because Jesus died and was raised from the dead that he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And according to the, and according to the Apostle Paul, this is the gospel. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. And how did he come about reigning? By dying. By dying. Right? Because there's no resurrection if there's no death. You can't have a resurrection if you don't have a death. 
And so Jesus is embodying and teaching us and showing us what it looks like to achieve power in the kingdom of heaven. And how one achieves power in the kingdom of heaven is by laying their life down. Is by laying their life down. Now, if you have your Bibles, which I keep saying that, I'm assuming everyone has their Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's take a look at the first eight verses. We read it before, but I want to read it again. He says, Now I I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so this gospel is not something that Paul made up. He received it, and now he's delivering it to them. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That simply means they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what's the content of Paul's gospel? Well, one, it's Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. His death was a promise from the Old Testament, and it atones for our sin. Okay? His death was promised in the Old Testament, and it atones for our sin. Another part of Paul's gospel is that he was buried and raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Again, his death, burial, and resurrection are all promises from the Old Testament. And then he appeared to more than 500 people. And so the fact that he was walking around and and breathing air is part of Paul's gospel message. And so Paul's gospel consists of the story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it's his resurrection that takes center stage for Paul throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have time to dig through all of that this morning, but if you travel through all of 1 Corinthians 15, it is just like, a, like, like just an essay on the resurrection, if you will, and it's beautiful, and I would encourage you to read it. But notice what Paul says first. He wants to remind the Corinthians of the gospel he preached to them, which they received, in which they stand, and by which they're being saved. It's the story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection that is the means by which we are saved, by which we are being saved. Which is why Paul refers to the gospel in his letter to the Romans as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But the reason why it's so powerful is because of what his death and resurrection accomplished. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? See, the resurrection did something. The resurrection overturned the old order of death, and it proved that the gospel Jesus was preaching throughout his earthly ministry was, in fact, true. And it proves that God reigns. It proves that God reigns. And this is the true story of the world. The good news, our God reigns in and through the person and work of Jesus. And the way he came to reign 
was by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is because of that obedience that God had highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the gospel, the good news, it is a royal decree that Jesus is king. It's a royal decree that Jesus is king. And to quote N.T. Wright, that means that Caesar is not. If Jesus is king, then Caesar is not. And so when the scriptures call us to repent and believe the gospel, we are being called away from the kingdoms of this world, from their ways their values, their pursuits of success and pleasure, and we are being called to a path and life that is marked by the upside-down nature of this new creation kingdom, where our ways, values, and pursuits are decidedly different from the kingdoms of this world. And the only reason this calling makes any sense is because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's the only reason this calling makes sense. In fact, Paul makes the point that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. In other words, if the dead aren't raised, then have at it. Enjoy all that the kingdoms of this world has to offer. If Jesus is not alive and well and seated at the right hand of the Father, if resurrection is not physically true, then everything we do is an utter waste of time. It's the wrong story. If Jesus isn't alive, what we're living in light of is the wrong story. And we should just be like the animals who operate on physical instinct and pleasure and desire. But the resurrection is true. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The news is not only good, but it is a fact of history. And the effects are nothing short of amazing. And so before we get to the effects of the gospel, I want us to wrap our minds around this. When the scriptures talk about the good news, when the scriptures talk about the gospel, what it is referring to is this royal decree that Jesus is king. That's what the scriptures are referring to. As a result of him being king, there are these wonderful and glorious benefits that we receive when we entrust ourselves to that king and his kingdom. Do you track him what I'm saying here? So the gospel is that Jesus is king, and the benefits of the gospel are all the stuff that we receive by faith. All the wonderful gifts of our justification, our regeneration, our adoption, our forgiveness of sin, all that stuff are the wonderful and beautiful benefits of the gospel. And so as, as theologians refer to this, Reformed theologians, they call this redemption accomplished, redemption applied. Right? Redemption accomplished, redemption applied. Also, if you want to get super like nerdy, it's the, it's the historia salutis and the ordo salutis, the history of salvation and the order of salvation. All right? That's just, that's fun. That's for free. Turn to Ephesians for me, chapter 2. 
Now, I know we studied this last week, but I want to spend a few more minutes looking at this passage, what it teaches us about the effects of the gospel, what being saved means, and what redemption and new creation looks like. And so the chapter begins, if you remember, by highlighting the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we lived according to the course of this world, that we followed the prince of the power in the air, of the air, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were children of wrath. We submitted to the kingdoms of this world. But then in verse 4, it says, but God. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. See, because Jesus had been raised from the dead, we too are being raised from the dead, both spiritually and one day physically. Remember what we talked about last week when we were diving into that, that, that theological category of union with Christ. Whatever Jesus receives, we receive because we are in union with him. And so that means we are being raised to new life, spiritually and one day physically. It says that he saved us, he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so again, our resurrection is right there present in the text. And also our glorification that one day we will look upon God with unveiled faces, that we will be glorified just as Jesus is glorified. And when he returns, we'll fully experience the immeasurable riches of his grace. Right now, we see through a mirror dimly lit. But one day, we will be receivers of the immeasurable riches of his grace. Right? Because that's how the kingdom of God is set up. It's already and not yet. So we are in the kingdom. We have salvation. We experience the grace of God. But that salvation has not yet been fully realized. We're on the way, and one day it will be fully realized. So we are, we are, we are saved, and we are being saved. It's this progression that takes place over the course of our lives into eternity until new creation floods the earth. Right? That's what's happening. It also is this gift, entire thing, right? Salvation, it's this gift that God has entrusted to us. And so when we look at this passage, verses 4 through 10, we're, 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 we're taking a look at all the individual and personal benefits of the gospel. The stuff that we individually receive when we come to God by faith. The, the individual benefits that we receive by his grace. This is like typically what we, what we share with people, right? This is the stuff we want people to know. Why? So they get saved. And make no bones about it. We want people to come to faith. We want people who were dead to be made alive again. And how that happens is through the, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, through him making us alive. But there's more to the benefits of the gospel. 
It's not just about what we get personally and individually because God is reconciling all things, including the divisions that we have set up between us and our fellow image bearers. Check this out, verse 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter two still. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's such a good passage. We could spend like three weeks, four weeks on that passage alone. So what does it all mean? It means that not only has the good news of Jesus' reign brought about reconciliation between us and God, but it has also brought about reconciliation between image bearers. So a couple of things. What we see unfolding here is, one, the promise to Abraham coming to fruition, that in the seed of Israel, which is Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? The ends of the earth. The gospel doesn't just stay in Israel. It breaks through the borders of Israel. We're seeing that Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Right? The gospel goes forth. The gospel goes forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're seeing the Great Commission unleashed into the world. But it's also, to get super practical... It's why things like racism, prejudice, and economic and political divides, they have no place in the church. Like zero place in the church. Why? Because it contradicts the story. It contradicts the story. It goes against the rule and reign of Christ. It's also why we should be mourning the checkered history of the church where so-called theologians argued for the merits of things like segregation, slavery, and banning interracial marriages. And so we, if we claim to be gospel-centered, we must fight to, one, continue breaking down the barriers between us because we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. And two, work to become a place where whoever it is that walks through those doors, that they're welcomed, loved, cared for, or as we so often say, known, loved, and invested in. Imagine if we could be a place where the broken are welcomed and made whole spiritually, 
emotionally, physically, and economically? What could it look like for God to reign in every corner of this place? Because that's what we're talking about when we are proclaiming the gospel. Yes, 100%, reconciliation between us and God. A hundred times over. But reconciliation between one another is vitally important to the gospel. It's why the greatest commandment is not just love the Lord your God, but it's there's one just like it, right? The Greek actually says there's one just like this, like it's equal, it's the same, same type of commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those things, love God, love neighbor. All of our neighbors, all of our neighbors, Because the gospel really does, it levels the playing field. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Everyone's welcome to the table by faith. The only dividing line is Christ. That's it. I'm not sitting here saying that it doesn't matter what you believe. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it doesn't matter who you are. Because whoever you are... Whoever might be outside that, that bu- the building, whoever might be your neighbor, whoever might be strolling through your neighborhood, whoever might be cutting you off on the parkway, whoever it is, they have every bit of a right to come to this table by faith. Every bit of a right. And we, as the people of God, as the family of God, if we are gospel-centered, are required to welcome them to welcome them with open arms. And that's the beauty of, of this thing called adoption, right? Like, like when we come to faith, when we entrust ourselves to this kingdom, not only are we citizens of this kingdom, but we're adopted as family members into this new family. And so, so we're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. Like, you tracking with that? That's actually more important than I think we recognize. That, that whoever it is that shows up in your mind when you think of people that, or groups of people that you are not particularly fond of, if they're in Christ, they're your brother or your sister. And I know not all holidays work out well, and sometimes there's a little bit of this at the holiday table, but, but it doesn't change the fact that we're family, right? Families fight, families disagree, but we're family. That's what it means to be centered on the gospel. That's what's happening. That's what was blowing people's mind in the first century. That slaves were sitting down to eat with, 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 with citizens of Rome. Like, that didn't make sense to people. That was shocking to an unbelieving world. That, that when, when Paul goes through these things called the household codes, and, and he talks about what it means to, to, for wives and husbands to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, for children and, and parents to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, for slaves and masters to, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that goes against everything that was common in the Roman Empire. But that's what the gospel does. It reshapes the community. It reshapes who we are. It reshapes how we function, how we live in, 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 in community with one another. And if it's not doing that, if it's just about us getting our get-out-of-jail-free card, our get-out-of-hell-free card, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. It is that. Make no bones about it. You entrust yourself to Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You will be with him for all eternity. But if it does not impact your life, then you don't get the forgiveness of sins. 
right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The gospel has horizontal implications all over the place. And so to be centered on that message is to be a people marked by love, grace, compassion, forgiveness, hospitality, all the stuff. And that's really good news, especially for outsiders. That's good news. Especially for the poor, especially for the people who are on the bottom rung of society. This message that levels the playing field, oh man, that's the stuff right there. That is good news. That is good, good news. So I don't know exactly what that's supposed to look like for us, like specifically. We don't have a program. We don't have like a gospel-centered program. We're like, if you come to our church, Redeemer Fellowship, join the gospel-centered program on Tuesday nights where, you know, we'll break down every dividing wall of hostility. Like, we don't, that's not what we're doing. Um, maybe that's a good idea. If it is, someone run with it. But that's not what we're doing. We don't have a specific, like, plan, but, but we do. Like, the plan is us. The plan is us. We're called the body of Christ, not the body parts of Christ. Right? It's all of us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it's the means by which God is breaking down all barriers and binding up all that is broken. And so when we say that we are gospel-centered, we mean that everything we do as a church, it has to revolve around the reality that our God reigns. In and through the person of Jesus. And that he is extending that reign through his hands and feet, the very people in this room. And so if every single thing we do revolves around the story that our God reigns, that means that everybody's welcome, everybody's cared for, everybody's looked after. No one feels like they're on the outside. And when we notice that someone is, we go to them, we bring them in. Right? It's practical stuff. It's all the stuff you're like taught in kindergarten, right? It's like, but where did that all come from? Prior, prior to, 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 to Jesus entering into the scene, like kindness, meekness, compassion, love, like that wasn't a part of the story. That's, that's Jesus that brought that story into the, to the world. Like now they're like values, right, that people, you know, in the business world adopt, that schools adopt. Everyone adopts like, you know, be kind, do this, right? Like, like no, 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 Jesus brought that in, guys. Make no bones about it. That is not how the world functioned prior to Christ. So that's what we're called to do. The gospel is the very heart of this church because without it, everything is useless and vain. There's a, there's a little insert in your bulletin. It's a card with a lot of writing on it. These are the words of John Calvin. He wrote this lengthy sort of tract, if you will, about the gospel. And I want to read it because I think it's that good. So we're going to close with this, and then we'll enter into um, a time of communion. He says, Without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all wisdom folly before God. Strength is weakness, and all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God. Brothers of Jesus Christ, 
fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. It follows that every good thing we can think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, Combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. For all these things, which were to be the weapons of the devil in his battle against us, and the sting of death to pierce us, are turned for us into exercises which we can turn to our profit. If we are able to boast with the apostle saying, oh hell, where is thy victory? O oh, death, where is thy sting? It is because by the spirit of Christ, promised to the elect, we live no longer, but Christ lives in us. And we are by the same spirit seated among those who are in heaven. So that for us, the world is no more, even while our conversation, life is in it. But we are content in all things, whether country, place, condition, clothing, meat, and all such things. And we are comforted in tribulation, joyful in sorrow, glorying under vituperation, verbal abuse, <laughs> abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient amongst evils, living in death. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. That's good. That's good. Everyone should just take that home and like pin it somewhere. That's why I print it out for you. So let me pray for us and then we'll move into a time of communion. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you and we thank you for the good news. Your son reigns, Lord God. Your son reigns and because of his kingship, we have salvation. Because of his kingship, there's power to raise the dead. There's power to forgive sins. There's power to unite us to yourself through the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would truly be a place that is centered on that story and that the effects of the gospel would take root deep in us, Lord God. We love you so much, God. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for the cross, for the resurrection, for the life we have in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.